I think that pastors, American pastors, have been irresponsible in promoting the idea to their people that America is a Christian nation. And I have been guilty of this in the past. Um, I was challenged on the topic and I had to go research. I had to read. And as I read and as I researched, uh, it became very clear to me that America is not a Christian nation and we didn't start as a Christian nation. Welcome to Pastor Scholar, Bridging the Gap, examining how academia and the church influence each other. I'm Chris Miller, your moderator. As always with me are Pastor Ryan of Revolt Bible Church and Dr. Corey Marsh, author, editor, and professor of New Testament at Southern California Seminary. Well, today we are going to be discussing Christian nationalism, and there is a lot of confusion out there about this topic. Um, I'll just throw it out there. Uh, what is Christian nationalism? Uh, yeah, you know it, it. This there is a there is sort of ambiguity with this particular term, how it's used, um, and I'm sure different people will give different definitions for how it is. But um, and maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but I, I look at Christian nationalism as well. It depends on how you're looking at it. So it's really the fusion of national politics uh, with Christianity. I mean, there you get Christian nationalism, right? But there's different forms of this. Um, you have a theological component and you have a more secular political component, right? So Christian nationalism can be something as simple as uh, right-wing conservative politics being you know, welded together with, uh, with biblical principles. Um, or it could be an entire uh, desire to be able to bring back law that's within the scriptures and apply it in governmental politics and ethics and different geopolitical um, you know, aspects of, of a nation. But um, yeah, it gets defined differently by different people. Um, and I'm sure we're going to have more discussion on this, but um, it is a little concerning how it's done because what it's doing is it's taking the Christian faith, which is clearly spiritual. It's taking ideas for the church, which is a spiritual organization uh, or an organism, a living body, if you will, and uh, illegitimately welding it together with politics and law, um, government. Um, these things are different spheres. They are related in, an asp uh, in a certain sense, of course, because they're both under the, the sovereign rule of God. But there is a distinction between uh, Christianity and nationalism, um, which is one reason why I don't even like to refer to Christianity as Christendom, as some do. It's kind of a welding together as kingdom law with the Christian faith. And these are distinct categories, I believe. Yeah, I think that's a. It's important to say that it's difficult to define because of how many different definitions uh, of, of of Christian nationalism are out there. I think we could just define patriotism as love of country, and it's important to differentiate patriotism. Uh, I would say that I'm a patriot. I've, I love America deeply, but I am not a Christian nationalist. Christian nationalism is the idea that. Um, America or any nation for that matter needs to be Christianized um, or and or it needs to some people think it needs to remain Christian as it relates to well I don't know how much we want to talk about this right now and how many other questions we're going to ask but there's a lot that we could say about it I would just say that with Christian nationalism uh, 
it's a very, very dangerous thing. Historically, it's been used to for dictators to support their abuse and invasions. For instance, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church is uh, Putin. And he, the head of the, or the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, I think it's Kirill I, he has essentially endorsed Putin because the Russian government and the Russian Orthodox Church are uh, basically seen as inseparable unities. And so the head of the Russian Orthodox Church has essentially said God has blessed the invasion of Ukraine uh, because they have, Russia has Christian nationalism, a form of Christian nationalism, although we would say Eastern Orthodox is not true biblical Christianity. Um, you see this in South Africa. You've seen this in other places all around the world where in the name of God, um, there's been massive abuse. And the reason is because they believe that God is essentially behind that, that nation. So Christian nationalism is just the idea that God is inseparable from uh, what the, your, your particular government is doing. And maybe a, a footnote for American Christian nationalism uh, we are not a Christian nation. Um, one of the misconceptions uh, that that really is pervasive in evangelicalism is that America is a Christian nation. I don't know how much time we want to spend talking about this, but um, a lot of people think that America was founded by Christians. Well, we need to understand a little bit of Reformation history to understand this, uh, the, the pilgrims that landed in Massachusetts, they were what is known as separatists. The Puritans, they were a sect of Puritans, if you would, that were seeking to purify the Church of England. Uh, the Puritans believed that Anglicanism didn't come far enough away from Roman Catholicism, so they sought to remain in Anglicanism and purify the Church of England. The separatists said, well, we're, it, you can't purify it. It's it's not going to work. So they separated. They hired Captain Miles Standish, a Spanish uh, merchant ship, got on the Mayflower, landed in Massachusetts. Yes, they they used um, the Bible to uh, to to write the uh, Mayflower Mayflower Compact, but that they were not their beliefs were not shared by everyone in the colonies. In fact, as you fast forward into history in an American revolution, we could say that most of our founding fathers were theistic rationalists. They weren't even deists, um, meaning they believed that there was a benevolent creator, um, but they did not necessarily embrace biblical Christianity. So to say, when we say Christianity, we're saying biblical Christianity, we're saying apostolic Christianity. Um, the teaching of the Bible and its historic revisionism to say that that's what the founding fathers believed. And so the evangelicals out there that are saying that we need to be a Christian nation because that's what we've always been and we need to propagate that, it's just historically completely inaccurate. Um, so although I'm a patriot and I love America, I think the experiment that we've been doing for the last 250 years is great. Um, I believe in democracy. Um, from a governmental perspective, but to say that we're a Christian nation and to somehow justify everything that we're doing. There's so many irresponsible evangelical pastors out there. Um, one very notable man recently said in a sermon within the last year 
that America is the only other covenant nation. God made a, a, a covenant with America because in our Constitution it says one nation under God. That's just uh, that just reveals that man is, in my my estimation, he's disqualified for ministry because he doesn't even understand basic biblical covenants. Mm-hmm. And so to say that that uh, America is a covenant nation um, is just a completely inaccurate. So that's a, I said a lot about Christian nationalism, but we could keep going and maybe as well, the questions unfold. If we I could, could jump more. in there, yeah, you know. Christian nationalism, and I'm glad Ryan brought this up, the, the dangers of it, it's very concerning. It, it's not only an American phenomenon. Correct. Right. So when we're saying Christian nationalism, obviously our, our immediate context would be United States of America, but Christian nationalism is global. And we don't have to go very far back in history to, to see the dangers of what happens when you try to wed someone's interpretation of what Christian, the Christian faith is with politics. Consider Nazi Holocaust. Okay. I mean, you got the rise of the nationalist socialist party. We call them Nazis. Here's Adolf Hitler at the helm. His first move, one of his first moves was to invade, if you will, the German Protestant churches and even replace the Bible with Mein Kampf. But if he, he understood if he can get the religious leaders behind his national politics, if you will, then you can interpret this movement as being blessed by God, which is exactly what he did to be able to uh, to, you know, not just invade Poland, but also to get his entire nation behind him in such a small amount of uh, time, because this was Germany, the land of the Reformation, right? So, I mean, it can get very, very dangerous when you are trying to, because first of all, when we're saying Christian nationalism, the first question comes up to, well, Christianity according to who, right? Because now we're in interpretation here. Mm-hmm. Because um, there's a lot of variations of Christianity that I would not say, or quote unquote Christianity, that are not that's not biblical Christianity or apostolic Christianity, as Ryan said. So it becomes very dangerous. And and we've had a guest on before that even talked about um, you know justifying slavery, apartheid, even, mm. um, and using uh, un- thinking that ha- by God's blessing with this. So you have this this welding together of somebody's political agenda with somebody's interpretation of the Christian faith, and yes. it gets extremely dangerous. And See, this is the problem with Christian nationalism is that there are different – there's different variations of it. So if you have a theological aspect that is actually conservative and Protestant, for example, those who are post-millennial you know, might, might look at Christian nationalism in, in a more positive sense because you're looking at, okay, we are building God's kingdom on earth. And this is where you get that Christian dumb type you know, name from, you know, Christianity and kingdom together. And you want organizations and institutions to be Christianized. Um, that is a theological aspect of it, but then you have the you have the secular aspect, which which you know Ryan talked about earlier, and I mentioned earlier as well, where you're looking at American politics or any type of country's politics and trying to proof text it or support it with scripture, right? And so you got this, you know, well it, it's secular, but it's it's kind of overlapping into some quasi Christian you know uh, ethics or something like that, uh, which results into a, it can result in a big mess. You know, so and then you have the confusion of American politics or whatever a country's politics is with the Christian faith to the point of you're up there preaching cultural politics, geo geopolitical type of ethics or ideas, even justifying certain war efforts in the name of God. You know, this is something that goes back all the way back in history. So we might call it Christian nationalism now, but this idea of a biblical nationalism, well, anybody who knows their scripture understand there is one nation. Truly, that was covenanted under God, 
and that was Israel, mm-hmm. right? Ethnic Jewish nation that was that was given a covenant from Abraham uh, through Moses to David, even the new covenant, even the Phineas covenant with the Levitical priesthood. There was a nation to be an actual microcosm of God, how he acts on earth, and people can see the Jewish nation to see, hey, God is in control. Outside of a, that covenanted nation, Brian brought up a pastor who irresponsibly referred to America as a covenanted nation. We're not a covenanted nation. Israel and Israel alone was. Apart from Israel, there is no such thing as a nation that is purely under God in any type of contract or government. Uh, it just can't be until our Lord Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. Yeah, and we would say that that right now the economy that God is working in is, is or working in the world through is the church. And Jesus promised to build the church. He didn't promise to build a nation or nations. Although Romans tells us that the governments are a ministering servant of God for upholding righteousness. So we're we're not opposed to governments. In fact, the Bible says that God sovereignly uses governments for his purposes. And uh, as long as they're promoting righteousness, we are to submit to the government. But to conflate the church and governments into one is uh, something is a concept that is foreign to the New Testament. And so to say that we are to be a Christian nation, you just can't find that in the Bible. You know, and, and I like what Ryan said earlier, because there's another distinction being made between patriotism and nationalism. Mm-hmm. You know, both Ryan and myself, we're both veterans, United States military, right? I'm United States Army. Well, the Army's he's kind of like the He's military. something else. I don't know what he was. He was riding a golf cart somewhere. Um, but I, I know Marine I was Corps. United States Army. Or, yeah. Oh, is that what it's called? Yeah, okay. Yeah. I was army. He's uh, he's marines, and and that's you know there's something there's something good about being patriotic. There's no doubt about it. God appoints everybody where they're going to live in the boundaries. Even that's Act 17, mm-hmm. right? So I think there's something to be had for you. Should be supporting your nation if it's you know if it, if, if you have just rulers who are doing you know the best they can with you know. Uh, say even under God, but as they understand how they should rule a nation wisely, it's a good thing to support our leaders, there's no doubt about it, and to serve for your country, which we did. That is entirely different than a nationalist aspect or nationalist attitude, most of which these people didn't even serve in the military, at least the ones that I know that are that would identify as Christian nationalists. I'm not saying all of them, because I'm sure there are veterans within this movement, but most of them aren't. And they'll have conferences up there and just, you know, uh, confusing people between right-wing politics and what's in the Bible. Oftentimes what we would call right-wing politics does gel with the Bible, right? I mean, probably more so than left-wing politics, but Mm -hmm. not always. And so the average listener, the average person in the crowd at a conference or the average, you know, reader of someone's book who's, who's supporting Christian nationalism usually isn't able to make those distinctions. And they're just hearing American politics or someone's version of this American utopian society that doesn't exist and thinking that's what the Bible teaches or that's, or that's, uh, that's Christianity. And it's just not the case. I mean, it, it can be. There can be overlap, of course, but there has to be these distinctions made. Mm-hmm. You know, we understand that church, again, is the economy right now in this economy of grace. God is, is governing through his divine uh, rule through the church, um, which is not under law, but under grace. A time is coming when the king returns who will rule with a rod of iron. Yeah. And it will be from the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. And there will be biblical law established as the theocracy. But I'll, say, I'll tell you this, in church history, those who have tried to establish a theocracy or a, even a theonomy, we'll get into that maybe perhaps, mm-hmm. have all failed, right? They, they do not last because there is a massive problem that invades all, that's infected all of humanity, even the best of our leaders, which is called sin. 
right? Everybody is what we would say totally depraved in the sense where our entire personhood is affected by sin. So there is no perfect leaders. There is no perfect nation. There's no perfect, uh, there's no legitimate quote unquote Christian nation because you're always going to have those who are corrupt, even calling themselves Christians, right? Well, let's define that then. What is theonomy? You want to take it? Yeah, sure. I'll take it. Uh, Well, the word is just a it's a combination of two Greek words, uh, theos or theos. What am I? What am I saying here? Namas. Theos. Theos and namas. Uh, God and law. So theonomy is the idea that again, it, this is a broad. There are some people that say that they're theonomists and they believe that all six hundred and thirteen Mosaic laws need to be um, enforced in every government in the world today. Um, most theonomists would be uh, Westminster Confession theonomists, which they would say, um, back during the Reformation, um, some uh, the Reformed uh, Church took God's law, the 613 commandments, and they broke it into three parts. They would say there's the moral law, which are, they would say there's the Ten Commandments. Then there's a the ceremonial law, and then there's the judicial law. And they would say that the moral law still applies. So they would say, so in a sense, some theonomists would say we're all theonomists because we all hold to the moral law. And then they would say, well, the ceremonial law was fulfilled in Christ, um, but the judicial law still uh, does, is also not binding except for what the Westminster Confession says. The Westminster Confession... Uh, Didn't we have a conversation about this? We did. <laughs> West, uh, Westminster. Thank I'm you. sorry. Did I say Westminster? Westminster. Oh, Westminster. So, I know. I, thank Think you. of the, the dog and kennel show if that helps I, you on that. Westminster, there you go. <laughs> which is a city in England, not Westminster, which is a city in, in Southern Orange California. County, right. yeah. um, Westminster... Um, thank you for that. Uh, Confession of Faith says that the judicial law can be used when uh, there is general equity to be used. And what they mean by that is you can use the judicial laws of the Mosaic law as long when it benefits people. Now, so... Theonomists, and there's a, a rising movement of post-millennialists today, uh, our friend Dale Partridge, uh, Right Response Ministries, Doug Wilson, James White has now jumped on the bandwagon, um, the uh, uh, guys at Apologia, Jeff Durbin, we, brothers in Christ, they love the Lord, they're faithful with the gospel, um, but we would disagree with them on that. We are not theonomists. There's a couple problems with theonomy. Um, first, nowhere in the Bible is the Mosaic law ever divided into three parts. Nowhere. The Jewish people do not do that today. Uh, they would not have done it in the past. That's a theological um, insertion into the text for people to understand the, the law. It's not necessarily a biblical concept. So you either take the whole law or you don't. And we would say, no, we as Christians do not live under the Mosaic law. Repeatedly in the New Testament, we're told that 
we are not under the law. We're told that in 1 Corinthians. We're told that in Galatians. Um, Romans 6. Romans 6. Or 14. Yeah. And so the the critique would be, well, then, then by what ethical standard does a Christian live by, if not the law? Well, we do live by a law, but Paul says that we live by the law of Christ in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul's very clear in that section in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. He says that he is not under the law, but he is bound by the law of Christ. So, well, what's the law of Christ? Well, in John 13, at the upper room, when Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, and that's that you love one another as I have loved you. In Matthew 22, it says the whole law is fulfilled in love your neighbor as yourself, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So we would say the law of Christ is love. So what determines how we live as Christians is Christ. We live like Christ. So we're not looking at the law and asking the law to inform us how we live. Christ and Christ alone informs us how we live. And Christ, we could say, embodied the whole law. Yes, he fulfilled the ceremonial law, but as we're conducting ourselves by loving God and loving people, we fulfill all of the different commands of the law. So as Christians, as the church, we are bound by the law of Christ. We are not bound by the law of Moses. So we're not theonomist because we're not looking to uphold or enforce the law. And, and we could, and maybe part of this conversation is our laws, uh, our American laws, our Eng- English law, English common law comes from the idea in the Westminster Confession, Confession of Faith. Westminster Confession of Faith. You me. Say yeah, it one I, more time. Yeah, you're yeah. off this podcast. Yeah, he, West, will, he will hit you. He will. He, he doesn't hit very hard. He was in the army. Um, Touche. Yeah, um, so, though I was a boxing coach in the army. Oh, that's yeah. good. I didn't. Yeah. Can't box my way out of a paper bag anymore. But I, I thought you meant like box cutters, like you're cutting open boxes. Um, so we. Uh, so anyway. English common law. Let's hear about English common law. Like English this. common law yeah. was based on uh, the commands in Deuteronomy. I forgot what English king did that. It escapes me right now. Um, and so in America, a lot of our laws are based off of Mosaic laws. It's not wrong to say that there are, to use biblical ideas and biblical concepts and say, wow, that is ethical and that is good to to have for a nation. But again, we're making a distinction between the government and, and the church. And so as, as the church, when we ask, how, how should we then live as Christians? Well, the answer to that is under the law of Christ, not under the Mosaic law. So that's a long, that's what, I hope that that was Gives very light. long. <laughs> well, was it Edward the Longshanks it, from Braveheart? Was he, did did he live in Westminster? In, in Westminster. Westminster. <laughs> Edward the Longfangs. Well, let me ask you this. Um, is um, the rise of Christian nationalism, how much of it can be attributed to those, what you call post-millennial views? Um, mm-hmm. Because you have a lot of Christian groups out there right now that are pr- actually protesting against Christian nationalism and the rise of it. Um, and a lot of these leaders are saying they're they're tying it back to post-millennial views going, well, you know, you're just trying to trigger 
you know, this idea that you can dominate laws and society and trigger Christ's mm-hmm. return. Uh, can you speak to that? Yeah. You know, there's, if anything, we have, sh- we have seen in at least Western society, but I would say globally, that those trying to build a perfect utopia, even with good motives, will fail, right? Uh, going back to social contract theory, it's this idea that if we were just under law and contract, people will, you know, behave accordingly. But that doesn't factor in a depraved nature and sin and selfishness and pride, right? It just, I mean, we have thousands upon thousands of, of human history to show that these things don't work going all the way back to the Tower of Babel, right? I mean, so to think that you can actually build something in our context, a Christian nation, um, is a little beyond naive. It's just, it's frankly, it's just, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's irresponsible, it's unreasonable, and you have history proving the opposite, right? But, you know, you have these leaders, and I, and, and I, and I don't want to downcast the entire thing. For example, guys like Greg Bonson, um, R.S. Rush Dooney, these were leaders, say, in the 1960s or so, that really got this, uh, that really kind of uh, inspired, stimulated this idea of a post-millennial nationalism, right? I mean, you got, like, say, so Rusos J. Rush Dooney, um, he was a Calvinist thinker, philosopher, ethicist, brilliant man. His reformed epistemology, I'm right there with. His presuppositional apologetics, I'm right there with, just like Greg Bonson. Um, but, you know, he, with the, the good intentions of, from a postmillennial perspective, that we can, first of all, we're a nation that's covenanted. If we're going to take Israel's covenantal, covenantal, uh, covenanted aspect and covenantal privileges and transfer that to the church, now all of a sudden there's almost this entitlement because we're in covenant with God that we can apply these very laws that were given to a nation of Israel. And so you have these two distinctions between what was called Reconstructionism and theonomy, and sometimes they're, they're used interchangeably, but there's really a distinction. Mm-hmm. Theonomy, from Greg Bonson, he wrote a book, um, Theonomy and e- Ethics and Theonomy, or Theonomy and Ethics, something like that, back in the, uh, several theonomy decades. Theonomy and Christian Ethics. Theonomy and Christian Ethics. It was more of a hermeneutic. It was looking at the Bible, looking for laws, reading the Bible through law, and, and, and showing how God's law you know, uh, governs all aspects of life. Christian Reconstructionism, say in R.S. Rush Dooney, then was more the application of that hermeneutic in concrete ways in society. Now, let's go ahead and, you know, uh, apply these laws that were given to a covenant nation, which is Israel, and apply them to the church to influence government aspects and different aspects of our society today. And so they went so extreme as, and not all Reconstructionists are this extreme, but a lot are. Rush Dooney certainly was, and I believe Greg Monson was as well of applying laws for stoning and death sentence for things like blasphemy, homosexuality, um, if, if a daughter was found not to be a virgin, because these were laws that were in Israel's laws. As Ryan mentioned earlier, it, it, it's, it's, it's a misnomer to splice up the law between ceremonial, judicial, and moral. The, the entire Mosaic Code is always looked at as one thing. I think Aquinas was the first to splice it up, and the Reformers did after him. But it's looked at as one code. So you can't just adopt certain laws but not others, right? Well, that's what Christian Reconstructionists try to do. But the most consistent will say, well, all of these laws then, if we're going to say that the church replaced Israel and those laws now transfer over to the church, then, yeah, most consistent— idea, if this is, the, your, if this is the, the perspective you're taking, would be to apply all those laws, even death penalty, to crimes that today we wouldn't consider should be, you know, put to death, like one's extreme, as I just mentioned. But the post-millennial aspect is showing, okay, well, we are building God's kingdom on earth 
building the society that to be Christianized on earth. So it makes sense in that sense to build any type of kingdom, you need laws. To build a nation, you need laws. A nation, to be a nation, needs a leadership. It needs a charter, some type of national charter. For America, it's the Constitution and our laws. Um, you know, for England, it's the Magna Carta. You, you need laws, right? You need a ruler, you need laws, and you need a place, a realm, uh, you know, over which to, to rule. And so for a, a consistent post-millennial perspective, like, okay, this makes sense. If I'm going to believe that the church has replaced Israel, all the laws for Israel are now given to the church, then it is my job to build God's kingdom and apply these laws in society. Of course, as a premillennial perspective— uh, which is what we are at this table, I would say the exact opposite. Because of sin and depravity, as I've mentioned already, we have messed up every single economy or every dispensation, if you will. Um, that's been proven, right? Man has been tested and had failed each single judgment um, that was given to him. So only Jesus can establish that perfect utopia. Should we want that perfect Christianized uh, land, if, if we're going to use that word Christianized in, in a certain way, yeah, it's going to happen when Jesus himself returns to establish it. Because others have failed, even with the best intentions. John Calvin tried it in Geneva, a theocracy, if you will. It failed. Um, uh, uh, Oryx Wingley tried it in Uruk. It failed. Any type of, type of theonomy or even theocracy where government is ruled by biblical law, it does not last right? Because of sin and depravity. Only Jesus can do that. So we are looking for that kingdom. We want that. And the post-millennial perspective is right in their desire to want to see biblical uh, principles and ethics and even law in place. Sure, because we want to be living in that perfect society. The good news is it's going to happen when Jesus returns to do it. But we've messed it up, right? We can't do it on our own. I, I appreciate you saying that because I think that's important to say to our post-millennial brothers um, that we want the same thing they want. We just believe, well, in the sense that we want to see righteousness um, winning the day. But we just believe that we will never see, we will not see righteousness winning the day by imposing uh, the Old Testament law. And again, the reason why Corey or, or post-millennialism is, in, is, yes, linked to theonomy and linked to Christian Reconstructionism. And I appreciate what Corey said. There is a distinction between theonomy and reconstruct, Christian Reconstructionism. For the most part, the, the re, Christian Reconstructionist movement has, it, it's really just not have any, doesn't have any steam right now. Um, theonomy is growing right now, I think. That's safe to say. We do want the same things, but because we do not see the church as, um, we don't believe in supersessionism. We don't, believe that the church has replaced Israel. Um, so we do not see uh, uh, continuity between the Old Testament laws and the church. We see a, dis a sharp distinction. The, the Mosaic law was for Israel and the law of Christ is for the church. But we, our heart is the same. We want to see righteousness win the day. We just believe that righteousness will win the day when the king does return to rule on David's throne. Right now he's on the father's throne. He's going to return and he's going to rule and reign on earth for a thousand years from uh, e even when Jesus appointed the 12 disciples and later he made them or the, the 12 apostles. He says to them in Luke that they are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, when, when did the apostles do that? When did they even spiritually judge the 12 tribes of Israel? Um, that was a, a literal promise that will have a literal fulfillment 
And there is going to be a time when those that are bound by the law of Christ are judging and implementing righteousness. And we believe that's during the millennial mm-hmm. reign of Christ. Yeah, I mean, Jesus couldn't be any clearer on that. You mentioned Luke. I'm thinking Matthew 19, 28, around there. You who have followed me will judge the tri- 12 tribes of Israel. That has to come to fruition, right? I, I, it's funny when you think of so we the terms Christian nationalism, theonomy, well, there's dominionism also mm-hmm. and kingdom now theology. There's a whole charismatic version of this post-millennial aspect. Some are amillennials as well, but they're going to take you know, very wrongly, I would say, that we need to uh, control seven hills or seven mountains of culture, government, you know, education, entertainment, all these things all the way down. And this is represented by the NAR movement, New Apostolic Reformation, and guys like Bill Johnson and, and, um, and Bethel Church and, and, and different, Benny Hinn would be part of this. And there's, there's a whole slew going all the way back to, to Wagner. Um, I almost want to say Porter Wagner. That's a country star. It's not, Peter Wagner. <laughs> there it is, right? And Kenneth Copeland and these guys. And they're looking at as we need to take over these areas uh, for, for, for God, for the Christian faith. But again, they're doing it in their own power, thinking they have the, the ability for miracles and the ability to be able to take over these things when it comes down to it in their own strength. And they're not going to say it's in our own strength. We're doing it by the Holy Spirit. But in a sense, they are trivializing, even blaspheming at points, the Holy Spirit's work, right, to be able to take over these nations. So whether you're a Christian nationalist or Reconstructionist, or a dominionist, all of them are, are apart from a premillennial perspective that says only Jesus can do all these things that we all have these good desires for, and he's going to do it upon his return. How much of this also has to do with the current culture war, people wanting to take back the culture? Yeah, I mean, briefly I'll mention, I'll just say, the desire is good, but never are we giving a mandate to redeem culture, right? Our job is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, culture is a concept. Let's, it, it can be ambiguous, but what is it? It's a corporate entity. What makes up a culture? Individuals, right? In any corporation, there's got to be individuals at the root level and brass tacks. So what we're going to focus our efforts are on is sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, repentance and faith in Christ, right? Because if, you if you're winning souls by God's grace— then that then those souls are what's going to end up changing the culture and their various vocations for where, for wherever they're called, whether it's in government or in education, all these places. Yes, you, a, a culture will be quote unquote redeemed to a sense, but again, there will never be that perfect utopia because if it could be, then we can take the credit for it. You know, praise God, only Jesus can do that, which is why we are we are praying for His kingdom to come, right, um, and for His will to be done. We want Him to be glorified through all this because we're a mess at the end of the day. We can't do these things even when the desire is there to do it. But we're not given a cultural, what's often called by our Reformed brethren, a cultural mandate. They'll oftentimes go back to Genesis chapter 1 in the garden and say that this was our mandate, but they seem to forget that there was an entire cataclysmic event that happened right after called the fall and the flood. And after the flood in Genesis 9, I believe, never again are we told to take care of the garden and to have dominion over these things. We messed it up in that first economy, that first dispensation we would call of innocence. Never again is that command given. Other commands are given, other you know, to be fruitful and multiplying these things, but never again to uh, tend the garden, to have dominion over everything in a way that it was before the fall and before the flood, right? Since then, I would say that mandate has been redacted, to borrow Chris Cohn's language in a book he has, Redacted Dominionism, I think it's called where that cultural mandate, if you will, Jesus promised it. He said, Ryan even quoted the scriptures, Matthew 19, that those who follow me, 
right? I will, I will, I'm, you're going to ju- uh, judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Paul says if he reigned, we're going to reign with him, right? At that moment, yes, in the coming kingdom, that'll all be restored. Paradise lost and then paradise gained. But in the interim, when we're at right now, we've messed up culture. The best we can do is influence culture with the gospel and evangelism and equipping people in the church, equipping the saints, um, and praying for Jesus' return so we can enjoy that perfect culture together when Christ returns, right? Yeah. No, I would uh, I would agree. Well, back to your question on has uh, – what was your question, Chris? Okay. <laughs> back to your question that he <laughs> can't remember. Question, like, well, yeah, basically, remember. just this rise of Christian nationalism, how much is that a response to the current culture wars? They call them jarheads for a reason, by the yeah. way. It's because we eat crayons. <laughs> um, he said it. Yeah, it's true. Um <laughs> I think the culture wars are contributing to the rise of of this. I think that the, those who are post-millennialist or or claim uh, to be theonomists, their their convictions are from their the, their theology, arising from their theology. I think it's gaining steam in maybe we could say evangelicalism because here in America anyway, because we have enjoyed. Um, a season in America where there was um, peace, there seemed to be prosperity, there was the, uh, seasons of our government upholding righteousness. And I think that right now there's a frustration in America that our leadership has failed us. And as a result, um, it becomes very appealing to people when they say, hey, when a Bible teacher says, hey, I, here's the solution. The solution mm. is to re-implement, you know, the law of God. That is an appealing thing from the perspective, from a Christian perspective, because we're longing for righteousness uh, if you're a believer. And so, yes, I do think that the culture wars are contributing to the rise of theonomy and postmillennialism. But again, culture is not a valid hermeneutic. Culture is not, um, does not get to determine the lens through which we view Scripture. Um, we need to approach Scripture, and we uh, we would argue that the right hermeneutic is uh, a literal historical grammatical hermeneutic or a contextual historical grammatical hermeneutic. We're after the authorial intent, and so in order to get the author, the author's original meaning, we want the the we need to understand the the languages. We need to understand the historical context, um, and so we would just argue that hermeneutic consistently applied is the right way to interpret all of Scripture, not uh, not allegorizing Scripture in any way. This is interesting. There was a, a Pew Research article that did come out, and apparently the majority of Christians, especially Protestants, are completely unfamiliar with uh, Christian nationalism. They've pretty much never read anything about it. It was about 60% know nothing at all. And uh, in fact, most non-Christians are actually familiar with it as opposed to Christians. And, but what's interesting is uh, of those polled, four in 10 Americans do think the U.S. should be a Christian nation. But of course, they all differ on how that should look like. Some think it should just be a more subtle influence. Others, like you say, go as far as theonomy. And it does go back, some of this, 60% of adults say the founders of the U.S., and we, we talked about this already, originally that the founders originally intended this to be a Christian nation. In fact, and here's the staggering statistic, eight in 10 white evangelical Protestants believe the founding fathers intended this to be 
a Christian nation. And you mentioned that, uh, the, that the, our founders actually were, especially of those original documents, right, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, most of them were what you called theistic rationalists. And I believe Dr. Greg Frazier, a uh, professor over at, at Masters University, has a wonderful book, The Religious Beliefs of America's Founders, where he, he talks about that. Mm-hmm. And he studied... Um, you know, the, the personal uh, correspondences of these uh, founders and found this out, that they're, they were not born again Christians as we think of as Christians. No, these many of them were theistic rationalists, like Thomas Jefferson. You know, he had the Jeffersonian Bible, right? He cut out uh, of, his own, of the Bible. He says, no, no, anything that has to do with uh, the supernatural, miracles, take that out. I mean, they're all really products of the Enlightenment in some ways. Yeah, it's, I think on the Declaration of Independence, the only uh, signee who was there was only one clergy member, John Witherspoon, I believe was his name, who was a clergy slash you know pastor who probably had a biblical ethic. I, I don't I don't know too much about him, but I know he was the only one as far as I, as far what I've read. Um, so yeah, they were rationalists and they were building what they thought was a nation on on a holy hill. So this is this is a good example of of welding together biblical themes, but with secular reasoning. So you're, you're thinking if we put them in a post-millennial uh, perspective, that would kind of make sense um, where they're trying to build a kingdom, a, whole, uh, a, a holy nation, a nation under God on a holy hill, a beacon to the rest of the world. But their rationalism is what really governed their ideas. And, you know, when you read Thomas Jefferson or John, John Adams, you see this very clearly. They were, most of them were Unitarian. They were anti-Trinitarian. They didn't believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit being one essence uh, with three distinct members, you know, within the Godhead. Um, Jefferson didn't believe in any miracles, as you mentioned, and most of them would be the same. John Adams didn't either. So the resurrection didn't happen. I mean, that's, if you start stripping away what, what should be an evangelical belief, they didn't have them. Um, but they did start a government uh, trying to be that particular utopian um, society, which secular politics just took on afterwards. You know, so there's this secular idea of postmillennialism of trying to in World War One manifest destiny, um, trying to be that example to the world. But as World War One and World War Two definitely showed, and all the American wars after that, including those, uh, man was not progressing, getting better. The world is not becoming more Christianized. We're actually getting worse. Where, where it's taken thousands of years to come up with medical technology, but right from the right after the creation week, right in the beginning, right after the creation, there's already you know it's already murder happening. You know we we're experts in killing and how to make weapons for killing, but up in, you know even up to the Civil War, more people were dying because they didn't understand like just clean your hands when you're doing operations. You know running water as opposed to still water. I mean we are so behind the curve in medical technology as opposed to how to hurt people. We're not progressing. We're not evolving into a better species. We're actually getting worse, right? We're using our our rationalism for destruction, um, not the other way around. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like a rabbit trail off of things. But the American founders, as brilliant as they were, and I'm so thankful to be in this country that, that we live in, mm-hmm. it would be a mistake to categorize them as Christians and certainly would be a mistake to call them evangelicals. They were anything but that. They were, as Ryan said, rationalists, theistic rationalists. Some perhaps maybe would classify as deists, um, but they certainly weren't Christian in the in the sense of being biblical Christians as we would yeah. define it today. Yeah, again, I, I church history uh, tells us that the those that landed in Massachusetts were separatists, and they did use the Geneva Bible to formulate the laws that would govern them as pilgrims. Right, the pilgrims did, yeah. And that, the Mayflower Complex had some impact on the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. The Magna Carta was probably 
had more impact or much more impact than the Mayfire Compact did. But I, as I, I just I think that pastors, American pastors, have been irresponsible in promoting the idea to their people that America is a Christian nation. And I have been guilty of this in the past. Um, I was challenged on the topic and I had to go research. I had to read. And as I read and as I researched, uh, it became very clear to me that America is not a Christian nation and we didn't start as a Christian nation. And so to try to, to propagate the idea that we need to remain Christian we, we're not even Christian to begin with. And that's where Christian reconstructionism comes in. Those people would acknowledge that we're not, and they wanted to reconstruct, reconstruct. America to be a Christian nation. And we would just say that, no, it, nowhere in Scripture is the church called to reconstruct nations. The church, as Corey already said, is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will say this because I can't help myself. This is my claim to fame. One of them. I have many. It's a big um, buildup. I hope he delivers. Let's hear the claim to fame. Is that I am a direct grandson of Elbridge Gary, who was the fifth vice president of the United States, and he was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and he worked in conjunction with um, with Thomas Jefferson to uh, to get to the final draft of the Declaration of Independence. He claimed to be an Anglican, um, but again... Uh, just want to say that, that, you know, there's Please. a direct line. So, <laughs> I'm a direct descendant of Alexander the Grape. <laughs> your, Not, head, your head gives it away. Alexander yeah. the Great, second cousin, the Grape. Yeah. That was me, Alexander the Grape. I just want to say that I, I technically, I haven't signed up, but I could be, I could fit, get into the organization, the Sons of the Revolution. So huh. just, just figure out, throw that out there. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, that aside. Okay. Uh, I was hoping for something a little more glorious like that, like who I'm related to, George Marsh, one of the earliest Protestant martyrs for the faith. But oh. that's what you get with this guy. He was the yeah, he's in the what, Fox's book. Re- of, wait, wait, he's he, in the Fox's book of he martyrs. He certainly is. He? Yes, George Marsh married under uh, murdered martyred under Mary Tudor, bloody, bloody Mary. Uh, but this guy is related to some vice president <laughs> that nobody cares about from decades ago, and he can join. What did you say? The Elks Club? Uh, yeah, the Elks Club. I am. I could be Elk a card Lodge. carrying member. Yeah. yeah. No, my my grandfather's name was actually Elbridge, That's named cool. after Elbridge Gary. That is cool. So, so what, we can blame all our politics, I guess, on, on this guy's family. <laughs> <laughs> so for just uh, Christians who are unaware of, and I think we're going to see more of this, more discussion, because more and more groups are coming out against Christian nationalism. I think awareness of it in the Christian community is going to start uh, rising. You know, um, clearly most people are still unfamiliar with it, but they're going to become, and especially with an election year here in the United States coming up next year. Uh, even now, there's a, something called a Reawaken America Tour uh, being led by a man, Michael Flynn. He's calling for Christian nationalism. I mean, this, the drumbeat, mm-hmm. you know, of this is just going to just heat up. Um, what would you say then to the average Christian who's tuning in? What would well, you for one thing, you know, Ryan said it, and it's true. It's very attractive, especially if you love your nation. And even what they're saying, maybe on a on a geopolitical uh, scale, maybe it's correct. I'm just assuming, largely correct, right? Um, maybe it's not. But there's got to be a distinction. We got to think if if we're taking the Bible, even the New Testament. Sometimes people forget this. This isn't thoroughly. It's thoroughly Jewish. 
right? We're talking about ancient Near Eastern culture in the, in, in the Old Testament and ancient Mediterranean culture as well as Near Eastern culture in the New Testament because we have Israel and then the different nations around, the, around Rome at the time. So this is far removed from, from 2023 United States of America, right? So you can't – it is irresponsible – hermeneutics just take some themes or some ideas without any proper exegesis, make a beeline to how I want to apply it today in government or in ethics or in any type of political reasonings or something like that. Um, I think exegesis, proper exegesis, hermeneutics, and biblical theology must precede, um, you know, the grand scale of going on a tour to reawaken America. And maybe they've done their homework. You know, I don't, I'm not familiar with what the ones you just mentioned, but I am familiar with a conference conference. It was a festival that promoted itself as the greatest spiritual awakening in American, it wasn't even American history. And I think it was in world history as if, you know, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two didn't happen, or even the Protestant Reformation didn't happen. This particular festival was going to be the greatest movement of God. They were predicting that even on their website. And you watch the majority of the speakers and it's just political rants. Again, some of it I would, I I would agree with, but that's not the same as coming straight from an ancient text like the the Bible, right, which governed national Israel thousands of years ago and the church globally today, right? The church, United States of America does not own the church. It's one of the things about this particular economy. It's global. You can't pinpoint like Islam. You can pinpoint even to this day its its origin and its biggest uh, uh, mass gathering of where uh, their, their shrines and their holy sites and everything is in the Middle East. Even Judaism, was, was its origin was in Israel, and they never went around the world. That wasn't their commission. It's not until Matthew 28 that Jesus says, go to the, all of the nations making disciples in my name, right? So you can't pinpoint the church. This is where it's at. It's, it's European. Wait, wait, wait. No, it's American. Uh, no, it's Chinese. No, it's, it's African. It's everywhere. It's global. It's not, it's not meant to be shackled to one nation or one area of the globe. It's the, the Holy Spirit's constantly moving the message of the gospel around, around, the, around the world. So to, to try to claim that we're going to awaken this country or this particular corner of the world um, through our political means and maybe proof text it with a couple of scriptures to me is irresponsible. This kind of takes the conversation full circle. I'm really glad that you brought that up. It's every tribe, tongue, and nation, ethnos, that's going to be worshiping God. And so when one nation tries to say, that we are the nation that God is using or speaking through, it's, it, it negatively impacts the gospel. Mm-hmm. It's an assault on the gospel mm-hmm. because the gospel is not something that is to, to that one nation is to hold. Um, and again, I know theonomists aren't saying that. Mm-hmm. And so just to be clear, I know that's not what theonomists are saying. But I do think that whenever you try to Christianize a nation, you have a theological conundrum with the gospel. It's okay. Then, then how, how do you then decide? So God is favoring this nation over this nation? Well, wait a minute. The Bible is very clear that the gospel is for all nations. And we as Christians are not to spend our time trying to make America Christian we are to spend our time sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the nations. Yeah. And as people in all the nations come under the law of Christ and let Christ become their ethic, meaning they love, that's what transforms nations. That's what transforms the world. Well, I can't think of a better way to end the conversation. Well, thank you, Pastor Ryan. Thank you, Dr. Marsh. And thank you for tuning in. 